Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Bill Lynch. This week, we head to the woods and take a masterclass in foraging for wild mushrooms. There are old mushroom hunters, and there are bold mushroom hunters, but there are no old, bold mushroom hunters. We also break bread and talk soul food with Xavier Oglesby, who is passing on generations of kitchen wisdom to his niece, Brooklyn. When you think of soul food, that's the first thing you think is black folk, because we were able to take nothing and make something out of it for a meal. And we'll hear about old-time music legend Aunt Jeannie Wilson. A marker has been set near the place where people used to hear her play. Her house was always open to anyone. Uh, all the kids that grew up down there where we lived on Crooked Creek would hear her music playing, and she would be on her front porch in the swing. You'll hear these stories and more this week inside Appalachia. Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Bill Lynch filling in for Mason Adams. The other morning while I was grabbing a cup of coffee at my local bookstore, I saw a display on hunting mushrooms. There must have been half a dozen different handbooks and guides. Mushroom hunting has always been part of Appalachian culture, but in recent years especially, mushrooms have been having a moment. Folkways reporter Wendy Welch spent time with fungi enthusiasts in Virginia and West Virginia and brings us this story. It's an overcast but hot morning, and I'm in the backseat of a car on the way to hunt for mushrooms. Mushrooms have been so hot lately, they might be like the superstars, you know? That's Amy McLaughlin. Her husband, Sean Means, is driving. We're talking about the mushrooms that are featured in the hit show The Last of Us. They're called cordyceps. In the show, cordyceps mutate and eat people's brains. In real life, they don't do that, at least not to people. Uh, there are mushrooms that are parasitic, and they do have the same name, um, the genus, as the ones in that, uh, that show. But at this time, we do not believe that they will uh, inhabit human bodies. Well, they do take over bugs. <laughs> bugs? Yeah, they absolutely do. Cordyceps, they get inside of the bugs into their nervous system and they do take over them. When the fungus is ready to produce the fruiting body, it kills the bug and comes up out of the bug. Wow. Sean and Amy are West Virginia master naturalists. They run a boutique vacation rental called Lafayette Flats in Fayetteville, next to the New River Gorge National Park and Preserve. They lead ecotours for people who stay in their flats, pointing out unique flora, fauna, and fungi in the area. If you want mushrooms in your life, there are two main paths to follow, farming or foraging. Misidentifying a fungus to use as food or medicine can be lethal. So foragers tend to hunt in packs until they're experts. Experienced hunters like Amy and Sean teach the newbies. As we disembark, Sean quotes a proverb known to every mushroom enthusiast in America. There are old mushroom hunters and there are bold mushroom hunters, but there are no old, bold mushroom hunters. In other words, it's a good idea to be careful when hunting fungi. The couple lead me into the forest. Bird song fills the air and dry leaves crackle underfoot. Which is a bad sign, Sean points out. Mushrooms proliferate after rainfall. A mushroom, known officially as a fruiting body, is the smallest part of a larger living organism that needs a lot of water and can cover miles all out of sight to the human eye. You're in the woods and you see the trees and you see the mushrooms. And then if you just stop and think, the vast majority of the fungus is underneath us, you know? And just think about that for a minute, like the dark, the dark soil, the earth underneath us and that huge organism that's under there that's pushing all the fruiting bodies up. I think that's fascinating to think about. There are also mushrooms that grow from wood rather than soil. But today we're hunting chanterelles, which do grow in the ground. It's not going well. I don't see any mushrooms at all. Chanterelles would have been easy to spot had any been around. They're popular for teaching new foragers because of their bright yellow color and distinctive fluted edges that make them look like a tiny trumpet. They're hard to mix up with any other mushroom, but not impossible. There's one called a jack-o'-lantern mushroom, and it doesn't really 
I mean, once you learn the difference, it doesn't look anything like a chanterelle. It has very different characteristics, but it's kind of the same collar. So if you were a newbie and you just were, you know, going through the woods and saw that collar, it's possible you could get excited. And, and those are poisonous. They're, they're not going to kill you, but they're going to make you sick. We find the target of our hunt after just a few minutes, but it's a disappointment. One chanterelle and it's old. Not every mushroom hunt is successful. After another fruitless half hour, we leave the woods. Lucky for me, Sean and Amy have promised to take me back to their house and cook up some mushrooms they've already foraged. In their well-appointed kitchen, decorated with mushroom art, Sean hauls a double handful of fungi foraged yesterday from the fridge. When I find out the plan for eating the chanterelles, though, I briefly consider making a run for it. Sean cooks down the little fluted trumpets in butter until they're lightly crispy, mixes in a small amount of honey, and serves this over vanilla ice cream. And now we eat. It turns out that chanterelle ice cream sundaes are actually very tasty. Oh, good. <laughs> Isn't it good? Mm. Mushroom hunting with experts is also a rare treat. But if learning to identify the roughly 2,500 species that grow in central Appalachia feels daunting, try mushroom farming. It's safer, simpler, and less subject to the vagaries of rainfall. To homegrow mushrooms, all you need is a log or a cardboard box and some spawn. Well, we are mushroom farmers for eight years, um, but originally we started on log and uh, buying spawn and inoculating logs, and then moved on to buying spawn and growing um, oysters and straw. That's Ben Harder. He runs Denhill Farm and Fungi in Christiansburg, Virginia. The farm offers workshops on cultivating fresh mushrooms, and business is booming. One of his most popular workshops teaches people to inoculate logs with spawn, also known as mycelium. Inoculating a log means drilling a hole and pushing the mycelium into the wood. There it will feed and be fed in a symbiotic relationship, taking in carbohydrates from the log, then pushing out B vitamins and minerals like potassium through the fruiting body. I caught up with Harder while he was vending at the Blacksburg Farmer's Market, and he shared his personal interest story into mushroom farming. I started a vegetable farm. I was a horticulture student. Things were going all right, but uh, one day at the farmer's market, a Appalachian Trail through hiker that happened to live in Blacksburg was coming through, and they were trying to sell these shiitake logs that they had inoculated so that they could finish the Appalachian Trail. It was amazing to see this log that probably had a pound and a half or two pounds of mushrooms growing out of it. It just kind of blew my mind that it, mushrooms were taking this waste product, a log worth you know nothing but firewood, and making a high value retail product out of it. You know, they're making something out of nothing. And so he sold me the logs. Uh, that year I killed them because I left them inside a barn and they dried out. But the next year I started inoculating logs. And from there, it's kind of been a steady growth. In just a couple of years, they went from vending 100% fruits and vegetables to 40% produce and 60% fungi. Their best seller home growing method isn't logs though. It's a countertop kit. Doing the tabletop farm or the mushroom fruiting block on your counter, it's really quite the experience. It looks so beautiful. It's like a living bouquet. Countertop box kits were everywhere during the pandemic, and they've stuck around. Harder sells bags of spawn you put in your own box. Walmart sells cardboard blocks full of specific spawn. Stash the open box in a dark corner of your kitchen counter. Keep it wet but not soaking, and in a couple of weeks? You can just kind of see it come, and then when it says prime, you get to just pluck off the mushrooms and eat them. And they even last a while uh, in the fridge. You can keep them for a week or two. Uh, so it's a lot of fun and like a learning experience to see how mushrooms work and be able to get to do it again in two weeks because most of them fruit again. It's a, it's a real blast. And educational. Den Hill sells the bulk of their fungal products to families with young kids. It's really been amazing uh, seeing the youth, especially like five to 12 year olds that are really showing interest in coming out of the woodwork. Mushrooms tend to capture young imaginations for many reasons, not least because they capture environmental toxins. When Harder explained this to me, his enthusiasm was infectious. When mushrooms eat toxic chemicals like <laughs> plastics or oil spills, like oyster mushrooms can live on an oil spill, clean it, and produce safe mushrooms to eat. It's really incredible. Harder also delights in vegans and experimental chefs growing tabletop farms for the joy of eating those fresh fruiting bodies. 
sometimes as an alternative to meat. Two of the most popular countertop mushrooms are lion's mane, which tastes like lobster, and oyster, which tastes like mushrooms. When it comes to a kitchen kit, the world's your oyster. We probably have 24 different types of mushrooms in our like culture library that we're actively growing. The farming and foraging worlds aren't mutually exclusive. Most mycelium appreciation communities tend to be friendly with each other regardless of methodology. Harder thinks this is in part because mushrooms are so hyperlocal. So I think mushrooms create community by having to be a decentralized system where cultures and strains and mushroom fruiting bodies can be sold and traded locally because of their lack of shipability and kind of regional availability. Kits bring mushrooms safely and easily into your home. For the thrill of a woodland hunt, don't go it alone. Hunt down a mushroom club. They're prolific in Appalachia. Foraged or farmed, fungi can be fantastic fun. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Wendy Welch. As we approach the holiday season, mushrooms won't be the only food on Appalachian tables. Collard greens, extra cheesy mac and cheese, and fried chicken feet are soul food staples. Soul food is associated with black communities in the Deep South, but the cooking style is traditional to Appalachia, too. Folkways fellow Vanessa Pena talked with Xavier Oglesby, a master artist in soul food cooking from Beckley, West Virginia. When peace like a river attendeth my way. It's a warm spring afternoon at Manna House Ministries, a Second Baptist Church in Beckley, West Virginia. Xavier Oglesby is singing his favorite hymn, It Is Well With My Soul, as he prepares a macaroni salad in the church's kitchen. Today, Xavier is cooking alone, but normally this kitchen would be bustling with life. It kind of reminds you of when you watch a bee's nest, and how the bees are, they're, they're buzzing around and everybody's just so busy doing, that's just kind of what it looks like. But they, it's all, it's chaotic, but it's, a, it's an organized chaos. The ladies at the church growing up, you know, you, the old ladies, they'd be cooking and all the ladies, they, they would bring their best recipes. Every one of them is good at something, at least one thing. And they're, they pride themselves at that. It might be macaroni salad or a pan of biscuits or chitlins. Soul food is a cooking style that is intrinsic to Black culture both in the South and Appalachia. Xavier says more so than the food itself, it's the way a meal comes together that makes soul food, soul food. When you think of soul food, that's the first thing you think is Black folks, because we were able to take nothing and make something out of it for a meal. And that's the way it is even today. You just got to reach and grab something. You just keep going, you know. There's always going to be something that you may not have. And, uh, but you can make a meal anyway. Xavier has been cooking since he was a teenager. He's learned from four generations of his family, but learning how to cook in the Oglesby household wasn't always easy. As Xavier boils macaroni and cuts vegetables, he tells me growing up had its moments of strict instruction from his great-grandmother, Grandma Virginia. She cooked for the superintendents of the coal companies. And uh, you know, as you know, back then they were domestics. And, um, that's what she did. She was known for that. I mean, this lady, she could cook, I mean, <laughs> almost in her sleep. It was amazing to me to just to see her cook. And uh, now she would sing, oh gosh, she would get in that kitchen. And everything had to be done perfectly. And she expected perfection from her great-grandson too. So she would stand there and watch me prepare a dish. She would have a wooden spoon in her hand and she'd watch me prepare this dish and I would have to do it exactly how she would do it. If I didn't do it, if I missed a step or whatever, she'd hit the back of my hand with the wooden spoon like that. Today at the church, women from Manor House Ministries talk in the next room while Xavier cooks. He says that in his family and at church, women were central to the cooking traditions he grew up with. So as a boy who was interested in cooking, he felt some resistance. Uh, eventually it was okay, but I've got, uh, like I say, I've got three other brothers and, and uh, it was going to be okay. In this family, you have to kind of uh, take your place. 
and you know draw the line there and so you just stand up and do that and that's what I did and then eventually um, it was easier I guess for the guys of the family the older men to accept that and uh, like that when you look around today you know people make uh, a living guys make a living at doing everything now, Xavier is teaching his niece, Brooklyn Oglesby, how to cook soul food and family recipes. He's doing it through the West Virginia Folklife Apprenticeship Program, which is directed by the West Virginia State Folklorist, Jenny Williams. So this program is hosted every other year, but for a full year, artists can be a part of this program to pass on their traditional knowledge and art forms and skills to an apprentice of their choosing. Folklife apprenticeship pairs are carrying on community-based traditional art forms and cultural practices, from fiddle instrument repair to mushroom foraging, all with the goal of passing on stories, skill sets, and traditional knowledge. Full disclosure, I worked with Jenny as an AmeriCorps member this year. This is an excerpt from an interview she did with Xavier in Brooklyn, where Brooklyn talks about learning from her uncle. Uh, my main goal has been to learn how to cook, and he's taught me a lot. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've always... I've been, I've had to cook. I mean, <laughs> I've lived on my own. I've had to make meals and stuff, and I've struggled since I've moved out with my own family. It's been a major struggle because half the time I'll spend two hours cooking just for it to be so nasty. Each apprenticeship pair keeps in mind the future of the tradition and who they want to pass their knowledge on to. I'm hoping I can raise two sons that know how to cook. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I'm worried about because, like you said, his mom uh, taught them all to cook clean and do laundry and all that stuff. And I'm hoping I can keep that going and teach my kids and hopefully they'll be better cooks than me one day. For the past year, Xavier and Brooklyn have been spending time learning together. Jenny says Xavier and Brooklyn are exactly the kind of pairing the apprenticeship program aims to support. I was really excited to receive their application. Xavier has worked with us in our first round of the apprenticeship program. So to have him back again in this program is really exciting. And for him to bring on his niece uh, to learn their family cooking traditions, that's especially something that we wanna support. As part of their work together, the Oglesby's have prepared food for community gatherings and also hosted events. One of those events is a card party, which is an informal community game night. Uh, on the cold camp, we used to have um, card parties and uh, people would go to each other's houses. On the nights that they would have the, the card parties that we would have, the ladies would bring uh, covered dishes and they would have all kinds of stuff. They would bring pig feet and, and somebody may bring some chitlins and somebody maybe bring a pound cake or two. These card parties have been hosted by Xavier in Brooklyn at the Women's Club in Beckley, West Virginia. They feature live music, tables with cards for guests to play a card game of their choice, and old-fashioned soul food. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Vanessa Pena in Charleston, West Virginia. Those two stories are part of our Folkways reporting project, which covers arts and culture in the region. We also had help from Vanessa's story from the West Virginia Folklife Program. The full interview with Xavier and Brooklyn Oglesby by Jenny Williams is archived at West Virginia University Libraries. For more, visit our website, wvpublic.org. Coming up, we hear about a new marker that commemorates an old-time music legend, Aunt Jeannie Wilson. You had to suffer to be able to play the music and have the feeling and soul in it like she had. You're Inside Appalachia. I'm Bill Lynch. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University, educating the people of our region and beyond for more than 150 years. More information at concord.edu. West Virginia recently paid tribute to one of its traditional music greats. Aunt Jeannie Wilson was a claw hammer banjo player who performed for governors and presidents. She helped to keep mountain music alive through the 20th century during the rise of jazz, rock and roll, and electric music. Brianna Heaney went to a ceremony honoring Wilson at Chief Logan State Park in Logan County. You could often find Aunt Jeannie Wilson 
somewhere along this road in Chief Logan State Park, where the Legends of Lore Marker is now playing her banjo, surrounded by a crowd of neighbors. Her house was always open to anyone. She, uh, all the kids that grew up down there where we lived on Crooked Creek, uh, would hear her music playing, and she would be on her front porch in the swing playing her banjo, and you'd hear the music all over the neighborhood. She invited all these artists and different people to come and sit on the front porch and play with her anytime they wanted. That's her granddaughter, Beverly Smith. She said she grew up singing and dancing along to her grandmother's music. Oftentimes, her grandma would walk down to the park to play. Smith says within a few minutes, she would have a crowd. Wilson played old mountain-style music, which predates bluegrass music. Old mountain-style music is a blend of Northern European music, namely Scottish and English ballads, and African dance and hymnal music from enslaved African people. The clawhammer style of playing originates from enslaved African-American musicians who made the earliest banjos out of hollowed-out gourds with animal hides as strings. It was distinctive of early Southern Appalachian mountain music. It's different from a bluegrass banjo style where the strumming hand of the player is pulling upward. Clawhammer got its name from the claw-like shape the player makes with their strumming hand while playing. Unlike bluegrass style, the player strums downward, often using the tips of their fingers and nails. This creates a beat-driven rhythmic sound. She always just used her fingernails, and she strummed it like you would a harp. But it was very unique style. Friends say Wilson was a mountain woman through and through. She would hike up into the mountains to find poke and creasy greens and mushrooms to feed her family. She was a sharpshooter with a shotgun and hosted big dinners at her house every Sunday. She just stood for what was pure and old from the mountains. Uh, I always considered her tops as far as the heritage, the music, and she had the most beautiful right hand on the banjo, smooth as a ribbon. That's Bobby Taylor. He met Wilson at the 1950 Mountain State Art and Craft Fair in Ripley, where Wilson had become a regular. You had to be tough to be an old mountain lady of that time period. Wilson was born at the beginning of the 20th century in Logan County. She married at age 18 and had four children with her husband, James Dewey Wilson. In 1939, she lost her seven-year-old child to pneumonia. Later that year, her husband died in a coal mining accident. You had to suffer to be able to play the music and have the feeling and soul in it like she had. Taylor says her understanding of pain and true sadness is what made her such an enlightened musician. People that's really suffered, you can feel the chill in the music. All of that comes through. The chill and the sorrow, the pain. Also the good time, the light, the dancing. Wilson went on to play for Ronald Reagan in the White House and often played for Arch Moore, the former governor who, according to her grandchildren, wrote her letters from prison. Now, nestled in Chief Logan State Park, sits Aunt Jeannie Wilson's Legends and Lore Marker. The marker is thanks to the Logan County Chamber of Commerce, West Virginia State Parks, the National Coal Heritage Authority, and the West Virginia Folklore Program at the West Virginia Humanities Council. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Brianna Heaney at Chief Logan State Park. Riding is a solitary experience, but it doesn't have to be. Twice a month, a Lexington, Kentucky man sits at the corner of the old courthouse on Main Street. He brings joy and hope to local residents through poetry. WEKU Sherry Lawson brought us the story about a man who makes poetry on demand. It's a pleasant autumn evening in downtown Lexington where lots of people are out and about. At the corner of Main Street in front of the old courthouse and across from the Fifth Third Pavilion sits 31-year-old Kurt Kaiser. The mechanical engineer is at a tiny makeshift desk and is writing original poems on his 1961 typewriter for random passers-by, and it's free. He's not exactly sure what influenced him. It's just kind of like, I have typewriters, I can think and write, 
why don't I just go out and do it for people, see if it makes anybody happy. In less than an hour, more than 10 people line up in front of Kaiser's homemade poster board sign that simply reads, Poems for Free. They all wait patiently in hopes of getting a personalized piece of poetry. Kaiser feels no pressure. There's zero hate for this. <laughs> like, nobody has been like, poems, I hate poems. Like, it's been cool. One of the first people in line is 23-year-old Secret Oliver. What are you feeling? What kind of vibes are you right now? pretty girls, pretty women, beautiful women, beautiful Oliver asks for a poem and stands by, watching Kaiser go to work typing. In just a few minutes, Kaiser creates a poem just for Oliver on a small piece of white paper. He titles it, Showing Out and Going Out. Oliver excitedly reads the poem. Going out and going out. I'm out here feeling good. Nothing jamming me up. The vibes, the scene, and even the fine food. Out here flying solo and feeling my greatest. Nothing can bring me down. And out here wandering about downtown. Oh my God. <laughs> On this Saturday night, the poems have included topics ranging from serious loss to a request for a blessing. The line is growing. Frequently, the recipients of Kaiser's poems try to tip him, but he declines. Everyone gives a different reason for wanting a poem from this man they don't even know. Madison Wheatley, Atiana Berryman, Andrew Markham, and Brianna Brevik are touched by the kindness of the Main Street poet, Kurt Kaiser. So what made you stop at this corner tonight? Who wants to tell me? So I've actually seen these before online, other people doing the poems for free in other big cities. So I was actually really excited to see that we have one here in Lexington. I just think it's a genuine gesture, and he just seems like a really great guy. And to do something like this, you know, on your nice Saturday evening, it's lovely. You don't see it very often. It's just nice to see people using, doing stuff like this. It's out of the ordinary, and it's out of no cost, and everything's for profit these days. I think it's a beautiful expression of art. It can brighten someone's mood very quickly. Photographer Femio Yanairon says he saw Kaiser writing free poetry and asked for a poem about balance. Okay, the title is Shifting Balance. Always a careful act it is to place the hands and feet. From shifting sands to steady hands to earth moving underneath. It's never easy but always needed. An ongoing opponent to whom I have never considered. What do you think? It's awesome! <laughs> It's awesome. I love it. I mean, what do you... I love it. I, it kind of really encapsulates exactly what's in my state of mind right now. And never going to concede. I like that part. <laughs> Lots of laughter and connection happens in the line of people waiting for poems. Samantha Walsh is from Pittsburgh. What made you stop here? Uh, free. And it, there's not many things that are free in life. And uh, poems, I don't know, it's kind of cool. I, I, I got to see it, you know? All right, so what's the topic? What are we feeling? Uh, can you do about my girls? Eve and Willow. Girls. Yeah, my daughters. Oh, daughters. girls. Okay, all right, not like girls. Yeah. Yeah, okay, Kaiser asks Walsh a few questions about her six-year-old twins and thoughtfully types out a poem. Samantha Walsh finishes reading the last few lines and tears up. Our love for them is limitless, and they'll know that day to day. They're my little girl, special in their own little way. Oh, that's so cute. I'm cry. Thank you. Later in the evening, a young couple from South Carolina requests poetry that is a blessing for their eight-month-old son. Corinna and Logan Milford say receiving the handcrafted poetry makes this visit to Lexington memorable. Father, bless our little Cooper now that he is with us. Our boy, our love, our little Rhea son. Eight months in and your shepherding shows. We know you'll be with him wherever he goes. We too will be there caring and loving each day. We trust in you because we know the way. In your free, in your precious name, amen. Man, that's oh awesome. Oh my that gosh, is awesome. that is so that is good. Awesome. I'm gonna frame that. Wow, you have a gift. Kurt Kaiser really hopes do. to continue lifting spirits and helping people smile. His goal is to show up at the corner of the old courthouse in Lexington twice a month. The way to find him, he says, is to listen for this distinctive sound. In Lexington, I'm Sherry Lawson. Go to most gardening centers or nurseries and you'll see a variety of beautiful plants, not all native to our region. Plant them in your yard, and some will stay put. Others may spread and choke out local plants. 
The Allegheny Front's Julie Grant reports on an effort to educate people about how their landscaping choices affect the natural world. When you walk through the Hall of Botany at the Carnegie Museum of Natural History in Pittsburgh, you come to a diorama of the Allegheny National Forest created around 1970. Associate Curator Mason Heberling looks through the glass at a reconstruction of the beech hemlock forest in northwestern Pennsylvania and points out that there are so many native plants. The herbaceous layer is super rich. We see ferns, we see flowers of all different colors, we see tree saplings, we see an orchid there, and we see the leaf litter under the dense canopy. But he says that's not how a display of the forest would look today because of all the invasive plants in the state. He says if you visit a forest now... I don't think you'd have to walk too, too far to find a plant, for instance, like a multiflora rose or many other introduced plants. So kind of an exchange of native plants for non-native plants, some of which are quite invasive and um, kind of spread and take over. Multiflora rose and Japanese knotweed were originally planted as ornamentals in gardens and flower beds. Japanese stiltgrass got here because it was used as packing material. Non-native plants like these can become invasive when their seeds are picked up by birds, wind, and water. Rachel Reeb, a postdoctoral fellow at the museum, says they can crowd out native species in woodlands or along creeks and rivers. Invasive is a species that causes either economic or environmental harm in some way or another. Another common invasive is garlic mustard. It's native to parts of Europe and Asia. People brought it into their kitchen gardens because it was great for cooking, and since then is now one of the most common invasive species you see in forests of Pittsburgh. It starts to grow early in spring, and its leaves shade native wildflowers that emerge later in the season, stunting their growth. Research shows that garlic mustard also releases chemicals that inhibit the growth of other plants. The museum was recently awarded a $225,000 grant from the Richard King Mellon Foundation, which also funds the Allegheny Front. It's collaborating with the Audubon Society of Western Pennsylvania, Pittsburgh Botanic Garden, and others to educate the public about invasive plants. Heberling says he learned the hard way how tricky it can be to talk about non-natives and invasives. A couple of years ago, Heberling put up a sign in the museum's Botany Hall with information about Japanese knotweed. It wasn't exactly this, but it was like, we hate Japanese knotweed. Remove it, you know. But Heberling says he heard from his colleagues about it concerned, it could be perceived as anti-Asian and anti-immigration. We kind of didn't really want visitors to accidentally take home that we are um, xenophobic or that we're making comments on immigration or that some people are not wanted. Um, So we, you know, have changed that text. With this new grant money, the museum and its partners are trying to find ways to talk about these subjects with visitors. We want to come up with best practices on how, both in museums and in other settings, um, how to talk about kind of the problem of non-native plants, while also recognizing that it's not these plants' fault, um, so to speak. They're just doing their thing. It's really as humans bringing these plants here and affecting ecosystem function and causing a lot of impacts in our local environment. Heberling and his colleagues are looking to create an exhibition. It may include digital resources, an online database, videos, pamphlets. Sarah Crawford, director of exhibitions at the museum, says they're still figuring it out. But she says one thing they don't want is for people to leave feeling overwhelmed by another problem. I really hope that we're not driving home to visitors like feel guilty. I hope the message is more empowering and exciting. She says they want to educate people about how non-native plants got to Pennsylvania and the problems invasives are causing. Crawford says it's important to teach people about native plants and how to foster them. It's exciting to feel like I know more now and I can do something. That feels good. And that's what I'd love to see visitors walk away from this with. The museum plans to open an exhibit with educational resources late next year. For the Allegheny Front, I'm Julie Grant. The Allegheny Front is based in Pittsburgh and reports on regional environmental news. Americans waste a lot of food. WPSU's Ann Danahy reports on a compost pilot program in Center County, Pennsylvania, that's turning food scraps into something other than garbage. It looks like a garbage truck and sounds like a garbage truck, but the pumpkin shells, rotting apples, and coffee grinds this truck is unloading will actually become something good. Compost. So he's going to take all this material that was just dumped, add leaves to it for our carbon source, and then he'll run it through this grinder 
and then put it onto the pile and that just helps keep all the material the same size so it breaks down evenly. Shannon Dunlap is the refuse foreman in State College's Public Works Department. He's explaining the multi-step process for turning those piles of food waste, leaves, and grass clippings into compost. You kind of see it steaming now. It's already starting to work. You're starting to create that heat. It actually happens pretty quick. The borough of State College has had a residential curbside composting program for years, but the load that was just dropped off includes scraps from a pilot program the center region launched this summer. The goal is bringing composting to neighboring municipalities. Shelley Motto is the Center Region Council of Government's Refuse and Recycling Program Administrator. Well, people really want to do something better with their food waste, and we know that about 40% of what goes into the landfill is actually compostable. The municipalities are more spread out than the borough, so curbside pickup made less sense. With this pilot program, residents who signed up to participate drop their compost off at one of five locked dumpsters. We have 650 people registered to do this. We've so far diverted over 33 tons of food and garden waste. That's right, 33 tons. We throw away a lot of food, and food waste is heavy. So think about a rotten tomato. It might not take up that much space, but it's a lot heavier than your balled-up chips bag. Some states are moving to keep all food waste out of landfills or have already started that. In Pennsylvania, composting is cropping up in a growing number of municipalities and counties, too. According to the State Department of Environmental Protection, of those that reported their composting stats, the weight of organic materials was more than 1 million tons in 2021. That's up from about 614,000 tons 20 years before. Along with the environmental benefits are economics. When you put um, food waste in the landfill, and it decomposes, it creates methane, which is a really, really powerful greenhouse gas. So we want to keep that out. At the same time, when you compost it, it becomes a really valuable soil addition. So you can you know, mix it in with your garden, you can mulch with it, and it just returns all those nutrients to the soil. Right now, the Center Region program has pilot approval from the state, and State College is providing the dumpsters and pickup. The pilot program will run through mid-November. Motto says they hope to continue it after that. And that would mean all of that garbage won't be going to waste. In State College, I'm Ann Danahy. The career of author Jane Ann Phillips spans nearly 50 years. Her home state of West Virginia has often figured into her books, giving a glimpse to the different decades of Appalachian life. Her latest novel is Night Watch, which takes readers to the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum in the town of Weston several years after the end of the Civil War. I spoke with Phillips about her book and growing up near the old asylum. So how did you start with Night Watch? My work tends to start with a voice. I started out as a poet, so I, I tend to sort of hear lines and then kind of be into writing something about a very specific character in a specific voice. And that person is involved in some kind of situation that I, I may not even really understand in terms of the future. Uh, but I started writing the, the section that begins the novel. Uh, sometimes the beginning section will end up 50 pages in or 100 pages in. But this time it be, it stayed uh, as the beginning. And we have this 12-year-old girl who's basically the adult in her family for the past two years um, she's a bit of an unreliable narrator because it becomes clear that she doesn't remember everything and that she hasn't been necessarily told her true history. So there are a lot of mysteries involved. We do know that they're on their way to the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum. Connolly believes that she's helping this man that she has been told to call Papa get her mother to the asylum for her, quote, rest and cure. But they get to the asylum and Connolly says, should I help her down? Should I help her? Should I help her in? And he says, well, she's not going in without you. And it turns out that he's abandoning them. The, the book is set following the Civil War. Why that generation? Well, it's the third in a war trilogy, really, starting with Machine Dreams, which had to do with the Vietnam War, and then Lark and Termite, which had to do with the Korean War. Uh, 
it just seemed natural to go back to the Civil War because it cast such a shadow over us in our time. I mean, it's a time in which there were migrations of people, separated families, uh, scant resources, divided populations who had more or less tribal allegiances to one belief or the other. And I wanted to look at what happened to real people, a family caught up in all this. The book really unspools various secrets throughout and I was delighted that that happened because I think life is a lot like that. And I feel as though, you know, the title Night Watch is the perfect title because it's about those people no matter the time, no matter the situation, who are sort of moral fulcrums in a sense within their own families, within their own communities. And it just is their tendency or or their their natures to try to protect, to try to keep going. And I feel as though no matter the chaos, human nature and historical nuance bends toward the night watch, protecting what is until it's safe. So those were some of the ideas that I was playing with. I also loved going back to a time that was pre-industrial, a time when despite the chaos of human interactions, the world was in some ways untouched. The idea that that people lived so in harmony with nature, you know, that it, it took them all day to simply put up their food and uh, take care of their patch of ground. But they were living very close to, you know, the natural world. You're from West Virginia originally. So the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum is, it's a landmark. Uh, how much did you know about it when you lived here as opposed to, I mean, when you went away and where you are now and writing about it? Well, I grew up in, in Buchanan, so that's 20 minutes, you know, from Weston. The Weston State Asylum was actually still operating even into the late 60s and 70s. Then, of course, it was shut down. And thank goodness someone purchased the building, and it's now a nonprofit. And every time I go back to West Virginia, I go there. I'm just fascinated by the building itself and the fact that it's one of you know, nearly every state had one of these huge Kirkbride institutions. And of course, I've done a lot of research into Thomas Story Kirkbride and his life and his ideas, which were really extremely contemporary. The idea that each person should be treated humanely, no matter what their mental illness might be. And Kirkbride's ideas were set out in a book that's oft quoted in the in the novel. And asylums all over the country were, were built according to his very, very specific plans. But he believed in a treatment regimen for each person that had to do with long walks on nature trails that went back through the mountains, maybe working around the institution. They had their own dairy, their own vegetable gardens, their own very beautiful flower gardens. And he also believed that people could improve and be released from the asylum. And if they had more difficulty later on, they would come back. He didn't see any problem with that. He believed that that we could be treated in such a way that we can find our own balance. As someone from Appalachia, do you think you see the region differently than someone who's not from here? How do you see Appalachia? Well, you know, West Virginia is the only state that is completely within. And it's always bothered me, for instance, that many educated Americans don't know that West Virginia fought on the side of the Union, that they seceded from Virginia and fought on the side of the Union. So I wanted to present this particular part of Appalachia, which I think of as being in the tri-state area, sort of northwestern West Virginia. The book is Night Watch. Jane Ann Phillips, thank you very much. Night Watch is in stores now. Our final story is a radio postcard. When he's not covering state government, WVPB's Randy Yowie spends a lot of time traveling with his wife, Vicki. He usually brings his recording equipment with him. They recently visited Goochland County, Virginia, to explore some early American history and try some craft beverages. Live music pours out from the Courthouse Creek Cidery porch onto a farmhouse lawn. 
dotted with families gathered around tables and under awnings, enjoying a bite and a sip. Liza Fierro Siafi and her husband Eric left California wine country for Goochland County after tasting a dry Virginia cider. They developed an organic orchard here in what she calls an inviting slow-growth county. And oh yes, she says cider is also wine. The way we ferment, the way we age, is just like you would a fine wine. However, we're just using apples as the fruit versus grapes. There's a beautiful thing to slow growth because it's thoughtful. Um, so definitely, um, you can come and you can spend you can spend a weekend, you could spend four or five days um, with the distilleries, the breweries, the wineries. Um, we've got great state parks. If people like to travel, they can stay there. We've got some great um, bed and breakfasts, Airbnbs. Um, but definitely, I would say um, referring it to Napa County. I mean. It's, it's a young Napa, <laughs> or a young Paso Robles of California. Taking an early morning walk through the expansive Rasawak Vineyards property is unlike any bed and breakfast or Airbnb I've ever seen. Among the trailing grapevines and fish stock ponds are pioneer cabins and tongue-and-groove-built barns and workshops. The structures are all steeped in local lore. They were slated for demolition, but transported here and rebuilt. Rasawek owner Joe Leesfield operates a nonprofit here that teaches young people the skills to rebuild and preserve history. Yes, this area was also known for the first mine gold in the New World. So, Goochland County had a lot of gold mines that, uh, after the war between the states, a lot of people came here to mine gold. And um, they. Uh, but when the gold rush took place in California, a lot of these people left here and went there. Also, the first uh, mining of coal was done here in the edge of Goochland County in Mannequin. While at Rasawak, Vicki and I stayed not in a Pioneer cabin, but an 1888 Pullman train car. Event director Jenny Leesfield says the Pullman is just part of a restored train station on the property. So the train station, we have um, a Pullman car, a box car, um, a tanker car, a flatbed, and a caboose. Um, there's a little train station, which was used for tickets. We also have a general store, which is our tasting room. And then we have a great big uh, log cabin, which is what we call the lodge, which is kind of a meeting spot. So. Um, you can rent all the train cars for Airbnb rentals. Um, weddings use them for weekend packages if their guests stay overnight for the weekend. Just down the road off Route 6, folks are enjoying what the Elk Island Winery has to offer. Owner Daniel Kleinfelter said the tasting room and adjacent porch are part of his family's former home on the farm. He grew up here, a tract of rolling hill land now steeped in grapes, crops and, yes, history. Farm, it's uh, 150 acres and we grow row crops, which we rotate between corn and soybeans and additionally the, the vineyard that we have on property. And we make all of our own wine in-house, grow the grapes ourselves and um, sell the majority of our products right out of our tasting room here where you're sitting. We are about 500 yards from the James River and the property that we are on, we have found just countless Indian artifacts. Actually, Rasawick is the geographic capital of the Monacan Indian tribe, and the Powhatan Indians were just on the south side of the river there, and in fact, the property that we are on was originally part of Thomas Jefferson's 2,500-acre Elk Hill estate. So, yes indeed, Tuckahoe is still a private residence. This current family has owned the property since 1935. Wow. <laughs> Sunday afternoon, they're just beginning the after-lunch tour of the Tuckahoe Plantation. The National Historic Landmark was the boyhood home of Thomas Jefferson. Docent Jessica Stiss says the expansive estate is one of the oldest and most complete plantations in North America. We are so very fortunate to have so much original still intact here. A lot of original outbuildings, like you may have seen along Plantation Street, the overseer's office, the old kitchen, smokehouse, storage house, and some of the original slave cabins as well. And the history, the gardens, and the grounds are a huge draw for people. There's always something beautiful blooming on the property, even in the dead of winter. 
A Bruce Springsteen tribute band belts out the boss on the Kindred Spirit Brewery's outdoor stage. When he wasn't pouring IPAs, taproom manager Ross Mullins talked about building a vibrant and welcoming Goochland community from the county's far eastern edge. I mean, we're only about 20 minutes away from downtown Richmond, so anybody who wants to get out of town, this is a great county to come to because you can get a little bit of rural, but you're not that far out of town. Uh, if you don't want to make that venture into the city where there's a lot of stuff going on, this is a great edge of the edge of the you know city country type of thing. Our final stop is Goochland's bustling Bird Cellars Winery. The Lucas Blasco clan is one of many families, yes, many with their youngsters in tow, traveling in from neighboring communities to enjoy the fruits of Goochland County's labors. i got my, my young family here and everything. Um, a wonderful space that uh, they're building upon to uh, hang out and drink wine and, and have a nice... Uh, just a nice old day. I, I say this is the Napa Valley of the East Coast. You know what I mean? There, there's so many, so many wineries out here. You, <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's incredible. Appalachia's fringe can be fun and fine for exploring. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Randy Yowie in Goochland County, Virginia. Till next time, thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia. Our theme music is by Matt Jackford. Other music this week was provided by Town Mountain, Gnome Pickelney, Justice and Jarvis, Jesse Milnes, Mary Hot, and Little Sparrow. I'm Bill Lynch, filling in for host Mason Adams. Xander Alloy is our associate producer. Our executive producer is Eric Douglas. Kelly Libby is our editor. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at In Appalachia. You can also send us an email to InsideAppalachia at wvpublic.org. Visit wvpublic.org slash InsideAppalachia to subscribe or stream all of our stories or look for Inside Appalachia on your favorite podcast app. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University, focusing on students' futures. Classes available at concord.edu slash apply.